0: Would you turn with me now or listen on as I read God's word, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, which we resume now after a break of both series last week, both Romans and Leviticus. Now uh, we return to Romans and Leviticus this evening, the day of atonement. Give your attention to God's word. Romans chapter six, verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And let us pray together. Father, we thank you as always for your word. We thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul here, which you inspired him to utter for the benefit of these Roman Christians and now of us as well. Uh, There's hardly any epistle, perhaps Galatians, perhaps Ephesians, but it really seems to us, Lord, that Romans is the great, the great epistle of the New Testament. Hardly any epistle which has so blessed your church through the ages. And we ask you that it would be a source of continual blessing to us still. And would you make us conscious of what it is to be under grace and not under the law as a result of Christ's redeeming work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we take up this new section in chapter 6, verse 15, we notice uh, the similarity between verse 15 and verse 1 of chapter 6. He's asking a question uh, and he is answering it, a question which arises from uh, the abuse of the doctrine which he's been teaching The doctrine, by the way, uh, very broadly stated, is justification by faith. Or more narrowly, just before we get to chapter 6, it is our union with Christ. We had been in Adam, now we have been placed into Christ. The question in verse 1 is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, grace is abounding through Jesus Christ in the world. It's abounding in our lives. But but does that mean, does grace mean that we get to sin? (laughs) Certainly not, Paul says. He takes up the question again. What then? This is verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. He's answering the same objection, but this time differently. In verse, verse uh, 21 of chapter 5, it was, We're sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And so he asked, Should we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And he's just said in verse 14 of chapter 6, That the sin shall not have dominion over the believer because we're not under the law, but under grace. And so he asked the question, which he knew that some were asking at least implicitly by their own sinful practices and their sinful thinking. Shall we sin because we're no longer under the law, but under grace? Well, let me remind you briefly of the teaching of that verse, verse 14. It consists of two statements. And again, he's responding to what he said. There or at least this objection, which potentially it might raise. Sin shall not have dominion over you, number one. Number two, because you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, Paul is simply saying when you take them together, that sin shall not have dominion over you, the believer in Jesus Christ, because you're not under law, but under grace. And so the reason that sin does not, and the reason that sin shall not have dominion over the believer is because he's under grace. It had dominion when he was under the law. The man in Adam, the man under the law, for him, sin has dominion. But now that the believer has been delivered from his bondage to sin and has been baptized into Christ, verse three, he is now under grace. And what does that mean? It means that grace is in control. It means that grace is reigning. Formerly, sin was reigning through the law. He was under sin. He was under the law. Paul puts it variously. But the point is the same. Sin was reigning in his life. It was the controlling, dominating force. But now that there's been this great change in the life of the believer. Grace is reigning. Grace is the great force in his life. No longer sin. And so we have in chapter 6, verse 14, one of those marvelous statements that captures the essence of the Christian position. Sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under under the law, but under grace. How beautifully, how succinctly Paul sums up his teaching, but which we should also recognize. And surely I would imagine we all do recognize at this point in our Christian life, which is open to abuse and it's being abused all the time. Every time we talk of grace, we open ourselves to this kind and this form of abuse you, you you at times and I and I especially think of earlier times in my Christian life, but even now you hear at times Christians almost encouraging each other to sin based on this text saying something like this because you're under grace, you need not worry with keeping the law, which is really just to say we shall sin because we're not under the law, but under grace. Or, or it goes something like this, when one Christian seems to indicate to another that there is still a basic need to obey God's law, let's take the Sabbath. We've been talking about that in Sunday school. The reply of uh, his fellow Christian is, oh, you needn't worry about that because we're no longer under the law. Don't you see? We're under grace, which is really, again, just to say we're free to sin. It is precisely this idea that Paul seeks to correct. He was aware of it in his own day. How people were taking this idea of grace and were saying this kind of thing. Let us sin that grace may abound or or we shall sin because we're under grace. And so he puts it in the form of the question. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And the question here receives the same emphatic denunciation that it received. The question received in verse one, namely, certainly not. Not. And that's translated variously, uh, may it never be, or God forbid, although that I don't think uh, is a good translation because the word God does not actually occur here. So certainly not, or may it never be, absolutely not, no never. Why did you even think it, Paul says, let alone utter it? How unthinkable this thought becomes to the man who is a Christian and who knows what it is to be under grace but again, if you've been tracking with the argument, uh, you, you would almost laugh that anyone would say this at this point. It, it really does seem unthinkable. And it seems absurd in light of what Paul is saying. How could anyone think this? How could anyone say this in light of the teaching? You listen to what Paul is saying and, that, and that's where you arrive. But what we have to realize is that this is practically Where many Christians end up in their living and in their thinking. In fact, every time you sin in a careless fashion because you're under grace, what you're really saying is this. You're abusing grace. You're misunderstanding it. You're misunderstanding fundamentally what it means to be under grace. You are saying to yourself that the practical force of being under grace is that I am free from any form of. Of obligation to keep the law, which is really just to say, I am free to sin because I am under grace. In our worst moments and in the and, and really, I think, in all the moments of some, that's what grace means to him. It means quite literally that he is free from the restraints and the obligations of law. Which is really to say, once again, that he's free to sin. There's no way to escape that conclusion. He may not quite reason it out like this, but this is where he ends up. To say, I am free from law is to say, I'm free to sin. Perhaps it would be helpful here to offer a definition of the law. God's law is his holy will for humanity. It is his will that I delight and desire to keep. It is a reflection of his righteous character. And therefore, a good definition of sin is this. And this is the definition that you find in the Bible. Sin is any transgression of the law of God. It's doing what God says not to do, or it's not doing what God says to do. And the question which Paul is posing here is, is that the effect of Christianity in a man's life? Is God enabling and equipping us to break his law? Is God making sin more likely or less likely? Another way to put the question is like this. If the believer is no longer under the law, what place does does the law have in his life, if any? Is there still an obligation to keep it? You see, that's the positive counterpart to the question posed here in verse 15. Shall we keep the law even though we're not under it? You see, the question actually is, shall we sin Because we're not under the law, but under grace. But we could change the terms and ask the same question in a different way. Shall we keep the law even though we're not under it? That's really what Paul is asking. Or as John Murray poses the question in his book, Principles of Conduct, in his chapter Law and Grace. What is the place of the law in the economy of grace? What uh, to add to that? What does grace do to law? If you are familiar at all with Paul's argument in Romans or in his epistles generally, you will know that this is one of the great questions that he is concerned to answer. What of the law now that grace has come? Well, let me review the prior argument. What does it mean to be under law? You remember he says the believer is no longer under law. Thank God for that. What does it mean? Well, it means many things, but the most relevant consideration at this point in Romans chapter 6 is simply this. That the man who is under the law is under the dominion of sin. To be under law is to be under sin. And this is because as one who is born sinful, the law provides no resources and no help by which the sinner might get free from sin's bondage. You think of Christian at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. He has this burden on his back and he runs Well, he got rid of the burden as well, but let me just suppose for a minute he still had it on his back. He runs to Mount Sinai and what does he find there? He finds the mountain is about to fall on his head. You won't find any help going to the law or trying to get back under the law. To be under the law is to be under sin's bondage. It is to be under the condemnation and the wrath of God. And what is worse, Paul will later say in chapter 7 and in other places is that to be under the law is actually to make the situation worse, not better. That the reality and the slavery of sin is not lightened by the law, but it is greatly increased. The man who is under the law does not sin less, but he sins more. And he finds as a result of the law, not a desire growing in him to keep the law, but to break the law. That's what Paul will expand upon in chapter 7. And really here, beginning in uh, chapter six, verse 15, he begins a consideration of the law in the place of the Christian life that he continues with uh, to the to the beginning of chapter uh, chapter eight. But it becomes the big thought in chapter seven. Let me try to illustrate what it is to be under the law uh, next to my illustration of Christian running with this burden on his back to Mount Sinai. We were talking in Sunday school about the dangers and the pitfalls of legalism. It's the person who tries to get back under the law. Paul condemns this in Galatians. Well, think of it in terms of a Christian family and of a Christian home. There are many Christian homes in which there is too much of a legal frame in the home. There's too much law. The house is under the law. There's so many rules. There's so little talk of grace, so little talk of the gospel, so little forgiveness, so little prayer so little joy christianity becomes moralism it becomes about keeping the law and what tends to happen in such a situation the legal the legal household i think experience paints a very clear picture and i think we've seen it that the children grow up grow up and they tend to rebel they tend to reject everything and in the end the family falls apart why it's because the law is no help For all that the law can do, it can tell us of our sin. It can paint a picture of what obedience looks like. The law cannot make anyone better than he already is. It cannot help us with the problem of sin. It cannot make a household holy. It cannot make a household of believers. And in the end, the story is always the same. Too much emphasis on the law will actually make the situation worse. It will arouse and excite in the heart of the sinner a desire to sin. And so he will sin. Beware, parents, of bringing your household under the law. But the point is, when you only have law, you are under it. And that is not a promising situation from the standpoint of getting uh, getting free from sin's dominion. If you want to get free of your burden. If you want to get free of sin's dominion, if you want to teach your children what it is to be holy and to live the Christian life, you're going to need something more than the law. You're going to need something more than a long list of rules and constant disapproval from the parents. You need the grace of God. And so on the other side of this, Paul is saying, as he glories in the position and the reality of the believer is that he is now under grace. He's living under it. The resources of grace are constantly available to him. how so through the ministry of Jesus Christ in his life and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit forming uh, a forming grace in his heart and forming in his heart, as we'll see soon, uh, the principle of obedience, not the law, but the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. But to put it as simply as I can, paralleling the other side of the equation, if I said to be under the law means to be under sin's dominion, to be under grace means to be, from the standpoint of the argument here, free from sin's dominion. Not weighed down by it anymore. Not wanting to commit it all the time. Not having this overwhelming desire always to rebel, but finding suddenly, even to your own amazement, that The great desire of my life is to live a life which is glorifying to God, to follow Jesus, to obey God, even to obey the law. Please understand when we say that we are under grace and therefore free from sin's dominion, that does not mean that we are free to sin. But the opposite, it means that grace is the power in our life that is reigning and the effect of grace is that sin is greatly subdued. The power of sin is now broken in our lives. Or look at it like this. uh, To anticipate the arguments later on in Romans chapter 8. Grace is the provision of God to do for man all that man was powerless to do under the law. Man was powerless under the law. He couldn't keep a single command. All he ever did was break it. But God, in the fullness of time through his son. Kept the law for man. Now that's what grace is. And so here's another relevant point. Which I might add here. And that we have to bear in mind. In terms of the broader Pauline theology. And that is how concerned Paul is. To overturn the notion. That the effect of the gospel. Is to destroy the law. That's what the antinomian is saying. The law is no relevance anymore. God has kept it. Forget about the law. The law has become irrelevant. Irrelevant. The law has become unnecessary. Of course Paul says. The law cannot justify the the sinner. Nor can the law ever. Make the sinner better. Only worse. You remember the way that sin was caused to abound was through the law. Chapter 5 verse 20. The situation becomes worse not better. The law cannot justify. It cannot free the man. From sin's bondage. But. It is a false deduction and a false conclusion to therefore conclude that the law, or excuse me, the gospel is against the law. That the effect of the gospel is to undo the law. That's what Paul makes clear already, if you remember in chapter 3 verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not on the, on the contrary. We establish the law. You see it again. Certainly not. Why did you even ask the question? Why did you even think it? Were you listening at all? The whole effect of the gospel is not to destroy the law, but to but to fulfill it. But to see God himself fulfilling it for man. That's what God was doing at the cross. That's what God was doing in the life of Jesus Christ. He was keeping his law. He was magnifying it. He was fulfilling it in the eyes of man. And do you remember what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry? He knew that everything that he would do and say was open to misunderstanding. And so. He led with this thought. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And I ask you, could he have been any clearer than he was? But do you realize the reason that Jesus and Paul both had to be so clear about this? And they so often had to deal with this thought. It's because all of us, and that includes myself and it includes all of you, all of us tend to distort what the grace of God means. There is a sinful tendency in the heart of man to distort the grace of God. We think of it sinfully as a kind of anti-law. And therefore, practically, as a license to sin with impunity. But what we're actually suggesting when we say this is this. That the effect of a man becoming a Christian is that he's enabled by God to live a life of sin. That because I'm under grace, I'm therefore free to sin. It doesn't matter if I sin. God will forgive me anyways. That's what grace means to a great many Christians. And while that is true, thank God, he will always forgive the Christian when he sins. Ought we not to see that it is seriously bad thinking on our part to deduce this from the grace of God. To imagine that the effect of Christianity is anything like this. It fails to comprehend anything of God's purpose in saving man. For for one thing, as I've been saying, the gospel is not God rejecting his law. The gospel is rather God accomplishing what his law required for us since we couldn't do it ourselves. And thus, the gospel is the strongest endorsement of God's law there ever was. It is the fullness of God uh, of the law being realized by God himself. Do we overturn the law? Certainly not. We establish it by our gospel, because that's what God is doing. He's keeping the law for us. And thus, do you see how absurd and sinful it is to imagine that it follows? If God has done this for us, that we are therefore free to sin. Shall we sin because God has kept the law for us? Shall we break the law because he has kept it? In other words, since the demands of the law have been met in full, Is there any need now that we should keep it? You see, once more, that is the question. And it is the hope of every antinomian that it really does this. It really does mean this, I mean. That now that God has kept the law, I'm free to keep it. Or I'm free to to break it. Just as as it is the charge of every moralist and every legalist against the gospel of free grace. I remember once uh, in my college days uh, defending my senior thesis sort of like a dissertation, but something much, much smaller. Uh, and I was surrounded by a table of professors. My, my senior thesis paper was on Luther's doctrine of Christian liberty. And one of the professors there was a Roman Catholic. And I think he was as interested in this question from a, 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 a standpoint of his own religion as he was as a, a question from the standpoint of history. But he looked at my paper and he asked me this question simply. If God really does... Pardon man's sin freely by his grace. Is God not thereby encouraging man to live a life of sin? You see, that's always the question. That's the question uh, the Roman Catholic will ask you uh, at the university when you talk about Luther. It's the question uh, the Arminians sometimes still ask. It's the question the Jews are asking. And it's the question we sometimes are asking ourselves. Are we not simply telling people that keeping the law doesn't matter and thereby emboldening them to live a life of sin? That is always the charge of the legalist. All of this talk of free grace in the gospel makes him very nervous. He doesn't like the thought of what people will do with it. He sees a preacher standing up and declaring it and and more or less encouraging people to go on. And sin. and what the legalist therefore wants to do and what he does is he tries to restrain people with law. He wants to bring people under the law, whether it's his children or his students or his church. He tries to make them feel the need to keep the law. He says things like, if you don't keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. You remember, that's what the Judaizers were saying in Acts chapter 15. A total misunderstanding Paul would counter not only of the law itself, since no man can keep the law, and since the law itself cannot help him in a state of sin. But it also, and more importantly, let us see, is to totally misunderstand and to totally distort the idea of grace. Am I really saying, and is Paul really saying, or was Luther saying to the people, go on with your sin? Just keep sinning. It doesn't matter. Was there any was there ever any suggestion of that in the claim that God justifies the sinner freely by his grace? Another way that we might look at it is by asking what is God seeking to accomplish for us by his grace? What is the purpose of his grace? What is the effect of his grace in a man's life? And from our perspective as those who are under grace and recipients of it, what is the effect of believing the gospel? Well, first and foremost, let me say it again. The believer in Jesus Christ is justified freely by the grace of God. Even though he's a sinner, God justifies the ungodly, not the righteous, not the law keepers. He justifies the one who breaks the law, who nevertheless has faith in Jesus Christ. God considers and counts him as one who is righteous in Jesus Christ. Now, saying that might make you nervous. You say that by saying that I've opened up the possibility that a man would abuse that. Well, yes, I have. And so did Paul. And so did Jesus. But that is the gospel. A free provision of justification to those who are sinful. The promise of pardon simply by believing. And if ever man should add to that, he has hopelessly distorted the gospel. But at the same time, we could ask. Along with the question, what is God seeking to accomplish for us by his grace? A second question, and that is, is that the only thing the gospel does for the man who is justified? Does God justify the man in sin only to leave him there? Is that the most glorifying course God could take with man? Is that the full extent of God's grand purpose and design in saving man? To justify the ungodly, but to leave them ungodly. Well, do you remember my little Pauline catechism from a few weeks ago? Let me review that. Does God really justify the ungodly freely by his grace? Man asks, Paul says, yes, really. Second question. And how does he do so, seeing that they are sinners? In other words, how could God ever consider a sinful man to be righteous? Well, here's the answer. By taking them out of Adam and placing them into Christ and thus regarding them as standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he regards a man as righteous because he's in the righteousness of Christ. How did he get there? By faith. That's the logic of the gospel. But it still leaves this question unanswered. It's the question that Paul is asking now in Romans 6 and beyond. But what of their sin, the man asks, seeing that they are justified in a state of sin. Is that the end of the story? Answer, no. No. For by the same means that God brings men out of the condemning power of sin, he also brings them out of the grip of its power, namely their union with Christ. Thus, Christ is to them their justification and sanctification and every other blessing besides. Or we could think of what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, a chapter which in many ways parallels what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. You remember he says, those who are born of God make a practice of not of sin, but of righteousness. But those who are born of the devil are always sinning. But there's this little line where he explains it all in chapter three, verse eight. He says, for the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, that's a very good answer to the question. What was God seeking to accomplish? What does his grace mean to man in salvation? Well, it means this, John says, that by God's grace, he is destroying the works of the devil. And what are those works? Well, sin in all of its form, uh, all of its forms and effects. Sin both in its guilt and in its power. Sin causes us to stand condemned before God. We need the grace of justification, but it does more. Sin is still wrecking our lives. It's making us miserable. We need God's help to break free from its power, its grip, its dominion. We desire more than anything now that we've been born again. To be free of its power. And that's what God does as well. He destroys the work of the devil in a man's life. When he saves him. He not only justifies him. But he sanctifies him. He makes him uh, along with his justification. One who is just. He makes him a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is the double blessing that Calvin speaks of in his institutes. The blessing of justification. And the blessing of sanctification. Both are ours. Freely by his grace. His grace. And that's the big picture. That's what stands behind the certainly not of verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. But going on with what Paul says, look at how he makes his point. How he rebuts the notion. Once once again in verse 16, we find an appeal to what we already know. He's been doing this throughout verses 1 through 14. He does it again. Do you not know? that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. He is appealing to a general principle. Look at it like this, Paul is saying. A man is either a slave to sin or he is a slave to righteousness, but he can't be both. He'll either be one or the other. Jesus says as much in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, once again, you can either serve God or mammon, which is just to say you can either serve God or sin, but you can't do both. A man is either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. In verse 18, he'll go on to say, and we'll see this next time, if by grace we've been freed from the slavery to sin, that means automatically we've become slaves to righteousness. We are not free indiscriminately, but being freed from sin slavery, we've become slaves to righteousness. But in either case, returning to verse 16, the way to tell is this, whether a man is a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness is simply which of the two masters he obeys. And that is your true master. The one you obey is your master. Of course, a man man may claim to be out from the dominion of sin, but if all he ever does is sin, then it's clear that sin is really still his master. And so the principle could be stated as simply as this. You are a slave to the one you obey. You are a slave to the one you obey. That is the principle. It's a very practical argument. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. It isn't so much a question of what you claim or say. It's a question of what you do. In other other words, the way to tell who are the true sons of God is to look at their lives, whom they serve, whom they obey. Paul is saying there's two kinds of people. He's making a comparison and a distinction. There are slaves to sin on the one hand and slaves to obedience on the other. One kind of person obeys God leading to righteousness. That is the Christian. And the other uh, person obeys sin leading to death. Do you know that slavery is just another way of saying that you're under something? The Christian is someone Paul has been saying who is under grace and therefore he obeys God. God is now his master whom he serves and whom he obeys. He's no longer under the law. But that doesn't mean he's without law. As Paul later says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21. We read that earlier. That he was without. Uh, he wasn't under the law. Though that doesn't mean he was without law. He was under the law to Christ. The Christian is someone who obeys God. And thus God is his master. That's uh, the, the general principle. Whereas the unbeliever obeys sin. And thus sin is his master. And this leads Paul in verse 17. And I'll close with this. To describe. What the Christian is. In light of this. He, he is lending or expanding his definition of the Christian. He says. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin. You, yet you obeyed from the heart. That form of doctrine. To which you were delivered. Primarily. He is pointing to the great change that has occurred in the lives of these Christians. He's saying that the Christian is no longer a slave to sin, though he was. Thank God he is no more. What a change the grace of God has wrought in his life. How thankful he is to God for this. Always. I thank God, he says, that though you were slaves to sin, you are no more. And how thankful the Christian always is for this grace in his life. You see, that's how Paul describes the Christian. You once were this, but now you are this. And that's what he always does. He always points to this remarkable change in a man's life. He was going on that broad path that led to destruction. But now, suddenly he finds, to his own wonder and amazement, he's walking that narrow path that leads to life. And that is the way, beloved, to understand the grace of God the grace of God is this tremendous power in our lives that changes us completely. Once you were like this, obeying sin in all of its dictates, leading unto death, you were on the path that led to hell. And now, by God's grace, now you are enabled to obey God from the heart. This tremendous power that changes us completely in a way that the law of God never could. I thank God that though you were slaves to sin, Paul says, you are no more. Positively, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, he says, I thank God you've been enabled to obey by the grace of God. Now you are able to do what once you could not do, nor did you have any desire to do. Now, now, the Christian is someone whose life as a result of this great change, he says, is marked by obedience. An obedience which is offered from the heart. You obey God from the heart, he says. This points to the fact once more that inwardly he's been renewed. He's had a change of heart, a change of affections. The whole of his inward life has been radically changed. His disposition, his desire, his affections, though they, though they uh, strove and yearned for sin. Now he finds all of them are bent in the direction of God. A heart of stone made into a heart of flesh. That's how the Old Testament puts it. That's the great effect of conversion. To have a heart of flesh is to have a heart made willing to obey. And that's what Paul is saying here. Not just that you've obeyed, but you obeyed from the heart. Now you've been made willing. There's no element of reluctance. The Christian is one who obeys happily. He wants to obey. He now lives for God. But what is it that he has obeyed? He says the form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? And what is the doctrine which the Christian has obeyed from the heart to which he's been delivered? Well, Paul doesn't say, but it's clearly the doctrine of the gospel itself. It is the apostolic teaching concerning Jesus Christ and his salvation and his grace. All that we've seen thus far in Romans, that's the doctrine which Paul says these Christians have obeyed and to which they've been delivered. What he means is that when the gospel was preached to them and they were summoned to believe the gospel, they obeyed the summons. The preaching came to them with power and the effect of that was that it changed them. It made them new creatures. And as new creatures, they obeyed. They obeyed the form of doctrine. But even then, do you notice how it's put in the passive voice to which you were to which you were delivered? You obeyed the form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You see, this is seen not so much as the activity of man, but as the activity of God. Once again, that's how we should understand the grace of God. It's what he does for us. It's how he has changed us. He's the one who's gotten a hold of us, Paul is saying. He's the one who changed us so thoroughly that we willingly obeyed the gospel when it came to us with power. We were happy to hear the summons. We were happy to yield ourselves unto Jesus. And never did that desire change. God has changed us. Formerly, sin was reigning in us unto death, but now the grace of God is reigning in our lives. It's in control. It's creating obedience in us, a willing obedience, Paul says, but one which still at the same time deserves to be called slavery. God has delivered us from sin, from the reign of sin, unto himself. Not unto ourselves, but unto himself. The Christian is one who lives unto Him. God is the one who constrains us to obedience, but only after so changing our hearts that we do so willingly. And for this, we thank God once more. But God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And I close here by asking you, have I described you? Are you aware, as Paul was aware in these people of this great change in yourself? And are you especially, I think this is the great test. Are you able, along with Paul, to thank God for it? Are you able to look at his work in your life and to say, God, I thank you that though I once was like this, I'm like that no more. You've changed me completely. I can't believe it. I'm amazed when I look at it. It wasn't something that I did for myself. It was something you did for me. Left to myself, I was under uh, or I was in those awful shackles of sin. But you broke those shackles and set me free and you created a new desire in my heart. Now I live for you. You are the center of my life and I thank you for it. that's the testimony of the Christian. That's the testimony of faith, by the way, that we want to see in anyone who wishes to join the church, whether a child or an adult. You may not be able to point to the moment of change or conversion, but you can say. I'm amazed to see the grace of God at work in me. Here is the good news of the gospel. Paul says it's power unto those who believe. And how does that power manifest itself? It manifests itself in the way that it changes us and makes us subject to God. The man in sin cannot uh, or, or does not. Indeed, he cannot. Paul says Romans chapter eight. He has no desire to obey God. But the Christian is one who can and who does. He obeys from the heart, Paul says. He lives for God. He yields himself unto God. No more unto sin. For God has made it so. And for this he thanks God. And this is ever his testimony. Amen. And let us come now to the table. Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine. Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, the point which uh, I, I'm always concerned to stress here is the way in which Jesus connects these elements, these beggarly elements. Uh, I say that uh, almost intentionally to, to denigrate them. They're so they're so weak. They're so feeble. They're so contemptible to the outward eye. And yet Jesus takes these contemptible things Just like he takes a weak display of preaching, which we are apt in our hearts, our fleshly hearts to despise. Nonetheless, he connects his work of grace to these things in just the same way that he connects our salvation to a man dying on a tree. It's amazing to see the grace of God on display in the weakness of man. Uh, But you know why he does this. It's so that uh, the abundance of his power would be on display so that we would never think it was the work of man or the work of ourselves. We come to him so simple, so humbly, so feebly. But the amazing thing is that he does the same to us. He comes to us simply, humbly and feebly. And he says, behold, my power to save. Even now he says that in the bread and in the cup. And the the simple question for the church to ponder uh, before taking and to examine uh, themselves concerning is this. Namely, do I believe that? Do I believe that? Jesus Christ has just as surely as as he said, the words connected these very things to himself is the grace which he purchased and poured out on the cross available to me even now in a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine. That's the question of faith. That's what it means to discern the body and the blood of our Lord. Not so much to discern his body and his blood in the elements but to discern the benefits which they bestow, namely the forgiveness of sins and the new covenant. And that is a question I leave with you as a matter of self-examination. And with those words, uh, let us pray together.